Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. Really honored today to have on with me Dr. Charlie Weingroff, world-leading therapist and strength coach. Uh, I've had the honor of seeing Charlie's work up close and firsthand over the last few years with Canada Basketball. And in today's episode, he's going to cover a range of different things on the movement side, including the joint-by-joint theory of movement. Um, if 10 minutes for regular folks is 10 minutes enough to really get some work done, some effective work done in the gym. He'll also dive into the core and how it's not just about your abs and drawing in. So listen in to his insights there. If you're a CrossFitter, things like the Russian twists and the glute ham crunches, what are those? Are those effective ways of training your abdominals? Charlie will weigh in. He also talks about the impacts of different lever lengths in athletes. If we've got taller, longer athletes like basketball players, some of the impacts there. And of course, the effects of loss of mobility. Um, Charlie is a deep thinker, a problem solver, very eloquent speaker, and also uh, you know, says it like it is, which I love. Uh, and his phenomenal, phenomenal resource, Training Equals Rehab, is a six-DVD series that if you're a doc, nutritionist, trainer, exercise enthusiast, is an absolute must-have. So enjoy the show today and uh, give us your feedback. Again, hashtag DrBubsPP on Instagram and Twitter or reach us on Facebook. Hope you enjoy. I'm joined today by Dr. Charlie Weingroff, a doctor of physical therapy, a certified athletic trainer, and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He's a member of the Nike Executive Performance Council and serves as the physical performance lead and head strength and conditioning coach for the Canadian men's national basketball team. Charlie spent 12 seasons in professional basketball, highlighted by his time as the head strength and conditioning coach and assistant athletic director for the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA. He was also the director of physical performance and resiliency for the United States Marines Corps Special Operations Command. Charlie is currently a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach at Drive 495 in Manhattan, New York, and Fit for Life in Marlboro, New Jersey. Charlie, thanks for taking the time out today. What's up, man? I'm, I'm good. How are you? All good, all good. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time out. And, uh, you know, you've got a really extensive and eclectic, impressive background. Can you tell folks how you got into uh, the therapy and performance game? Ah, it's almost like uh, i got to tell the, the same story over and over again. <laughs> for sure, for sure. The, uh, uh, let's see. We, I, 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 uh, when I was going to undergrad, I kind of always had it in my head I wanted to be uh, an athletic trainer. And uh, I didn't think that uh, medical doctors uh, worked with people long enough uh, to, you know, to have a, to just be satisfied. I was probably right about that. <laughs> but the, uh, I think when I got to a point where uh, the, the traditional you know, approach would be to get a graduate assistant as FA trainer, get your master's, get PhD, and maybe get into teaching, I think that was kind of where I had my head when I was uh, early on in college. And then when I met my advisor, uh, Dr. Tina Welgum, she, uh, she insisted that I had all the proper grades to get into uh, PT school, so I should just do that. And even if I never wanted to be a PT, it would make me more marketable as, as an athletic trainer for whatever, even if it was the same path as before. So instead of having my Master's of Science in something like exercise physiology or athletic training, uh, I would have my master's of science in physical therapy. And uh, the way the story told, it was totally, totally correct. Uh, I found myself applying for these thirty and forty thousand dollar jobs and having to explain why am I not staying in New Jersey for sixty or seventy thousand uh, dollars to be a physical therapist. And it was just, just what I wanted to do. And uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, without being an athletic trainer. The, the entry-level jobs in professional sports are very, very few and, and far between. I think over the last several years, there's been some more entry-level jobs if you're not an athletic trainer and you're just a PT, but it's uh, very much not the uh, – you're not playing the odds unless you're a PT and an ATC at the, uh, at the same time. So uh, I was in the NBA uh, right out of PT school and then uh, moved on to the minor leagues and uh, then I got an opportunity to come back to the NBA in 2003, where I was uh, 
I was still an assistant athletic trainer. And at that time, the 76ers didn't have a strength and conditioning coach. And I really believe this was the reason why I became the strength and conditioning coach because, uh, because there was none. And based on how I looked, the players felt confident with my ability to handle a pair of dumbbells. So nice. they, would, uh, they would ask me to come, hey, Chuck Wagner, put me through a workout. And it's not that I didn't know how to put someone through a workout, but I had just worked out for myself and, uh, and had been at certain levels of, of competitive powerlifting, neither of which were, were what I would even at the time consider appropriate athletic development for any kind of athlete, much less an NBA uh, superstar. So uh, from that year on, it was kind of – that was when the, the silver spoon was wedged into my mouth in terms of understanding – the uh, the performance world, and that from that point, uh, because I was already formally trained as a uh, as a physiotherapist, I just started to see that, uh, particularly in that world in the NBA, where uh, keeping players uh, at full speed and even healthy is far more important than improving their physiological qualities. Where you know the, this whole idea is of of therapy and performance, et cetera, they're really all one big thing. And there's just different techniques that are called upon at different times. So that's kind of when I uh, shifted gears a little bit and, and really found that, uh, that, that performance wasn't terribly different than, than rehabilitation, but rather more directed. And if there was no injury, what could we do? And, and the more you did, the more you found that that the concepts and principles of rehabilitation were not terribly different uh, than, than what we saw in terms of uh, bigger, faster, stronger, more fit, more resilient, et cetera. So, uh, you know, life kind of went on that way where pretty much every job I had uh, was really based on that, the, the model that I started to virgin uh, in, the, in the early middle 2000s. Charlie, that's, uh, that's fantastic, and I want to dive into a lot of the movement patterns, muscular imbalances, and injuries here today, and I know a lot of our listeners are, who are strength <clears throat> coaches, therapists, chiros are already going to be familiar with all your great work, but to get everyone on the same page here, docs, nutritionists, maybe personal trainers, can we start off with just a few definitions so we can uh, create a bit of a framework here? So how about just some mobility and stability? Can you, can you clarify those for us? Uh, yeah, so, so we're going to uh, – if we're talking about mobility and stability, we're, we're going to uh, – we're going to be talking about – joints or joint systems. So for instance, we could say the elbow. Well, the elbow is probably upwards of at times four different joints, if not three. So a joint or joint system. And these are concepts. These aren't like ironclad. This is always the proper word, always the proper definition. They're just concepts that are really based on a theory of motion that we move like slingshots. And what that really means is the quite true, and a lot of this is grounded in the in some of the physical laws of friction, if we don't have one segment or one entity or one part of a system staying still, it's literally impossible to create force in a neighboring system. So in order for us to walk, you have to have friction to the ground. In order for me to lift my shoulder with whatever mobility it has, I have to have control or stability of the neighboring segment, which in this case uh, would, be, would be the scapula. So in order to start to see how something has to stay still in order for something to move, we then can coin mobility and stability by defining mobility as the nervous system's current impact on a joint system or joint, a joint or joint system, uh, uninfluenced. And really what this means is what is the joint capable of doing without you doing it? Basically, can I come up to your arm and lift it to 180 degrees? Now, mobility is really meant to only be communicated after you, the, the neighbor's uh, stability. Stability is control in the presence of change. There's a lot of times where we look at, at certain joints and they appear to be staying still and that has been defined as desirable. Well, maybe for that movement strategy it's desirable, but to, to move my back in a yoga-ish uh, toe touch is every bit as stable as holding a very, very firm neutral spine 
in a heavy deadlift. They're both examples of stability because they're both examples of control in the presence of change. But when we talk about the joint-by-joint joint theory and this construct in which the body moves with one joint system relatively staying still or under control and its neighboring joint system moving, we're always going to see that every joint needs mobility and stability, but some joints need more mobility and some joints need more stability. And if we can guide our training or other any intervention from a joint standpoint towards this uh, balance of neighbors, some being more mobile, some being more stable, then uh, we, we typically will have uh, efficient strategies of force production and efficient strategies of minimizing joint wear. So mobility and stability are the key components to the joint-by-joint joint theory, and it's really a construct of understanding uh, how we can optimize force production uh, with minimal joint wear. And if we start, to, you know, from the ground up, can you can you walk people through how that looks from the ankle to the knee to the hip, uh, just to give a brief overview there? Yeah, yeah, sure. So if we start at the big toe, uh, we'll start with mobility, and and then we'll move to the midfoot where it'll be stability. And here we can go kind of up or down. If we go from the midfoot south, we're going to go to the subtalar joint, which would be stable. And then if we go from the midfoot north, then we'll go to the talocural joint, which we be mobile. And I'm skipping a lot of joints because these are the, the main areas. For but sure. what, we'll, what we'll find if we take a little uh, pit stop just at the foot, areas of the body that are, that are described as mobile in the joint by joint, when they're not mobile, we'll typically see issues. I can't tell you what. It could be continually having degenerative changes in these joints, or it could be a loss of control in the neighboring joint. So when we find that areas like the subtalar joint and the midfoot, when they don't have control, then we see an issue uh, where if we do not have control of the subtalar joint at end range, we then could be uh, have components uh, to a, to a lateral ankle sprain. If if we don't have control over the midfoot, then we we may find an inefficient gait strategy in terms of the foot being pronated and or supinated longer than efficient. So every joint needs mobility. Every joint needs stability. As we move up the chain, uh, we'll describe where do we see the most of these problems. So we finished with talocural being mobile. Then we'll move to the knee, which will be stable. Now, that's why you know, we have to communicate the knee as a joint system because when we say stable, we're going to see most of our issues in the transverse and frontal plane where we exceed the control mechanisms, both uh, passive and dynamic structures. Uh, obviously, it's mobile in the sagittal plane. But primarily, we're going to see most of our, our, our injuries at the knee uh, in the frontal and transverse plane. Then moving up to the hip, it's mobile. Then to the sp uh, lumbar spine is stable. The thoracic spine is mobile. And now if we continue north to the cervical spine, we'll see stable. But if we come back to the thoracic spine and go east-west, we'll find that the scapula are going to be uh, stable. Glenohumeral joint mobile. Elbow, similar to the knee, stable. Wrist, similar to the ankle, mobile. So the joint-by-joint joint theory, now that we have the definitions of mobility and stability, we can see it as an alternating system of stable segments, controlled segments, on mobile levers. And when we have those joint systems flip-flopped, we'll usually see some kind of overuse issue, some kind of trauma or some kind of movement strategy that isn't necessarily efficient for force production uh, or minimizing joint wear. So alter alternating system of stable segments and mobile levers is the physical approach to how we can see the body as a slingshot. Awesome. Now, if we take that into, before we jump into athletes, if we take that into just your average desk worker sitting at a desk nine to five, commuting into work, sitting down, you know, what's going on in terms of the, you know, facilitations or in inhibited areas in, the, in, in that person that we got to start to, to solve yeah. and resolve? Well, the, without having a, a lifestyle that demands and, and utilizes mobility in the key areas, in, the, in most cases, if not all, the thoracic spine, the hips, and the ankles, when we lose mobility, uh, we rob Peter to pay Paul. 
So then the, the neighboring segment where if it's thoracic spine, it'll be the neck, the lumbar spine, the ribs, or the scapula. Uh, if you lose mobility in the hips, you're going to look at the knee uh, and or the lumbar spine. If we lose uh, mobility in the ankles, we'll typically see issues at the knee where the areas that are meant to create control and on a foundation, we create movement then in those. And creating movement uh, inefficiently in the lumbar spine, the scapula, leads to lots of the orthopedic conditions that I don't know that the names are always so significant, but when joint systems are not prepared for the activities that they're doing, in this case, because the other joint systems are not doing their job, we run into, we run into some kind of overstressful situation that often leads to musculoskeletal injury, but it doesn't have to. At the very least, it's going to be minimizing force production and maximizing joint wear. It does the opposite of what this ideal physical approach to movement would, would suggest. And so for someone who's sitting at that desk all day, that forward head position, I know you've, uh, you know, I've heard you mention like the SCMs or the hip flexors of the neck. You know, what, what can people start to do on that level or for the docs listening at the you know, GPs and whatnot? Um, you know, we get that thoracic stiffness, the head position forward, um, you know, are there strategies that we can start to implement with, with clients? Um, where's, where's the first step? Well, I think to, to, to not be terribly obtrusive to the, to the realities of that type of a work professional, just get up and, and reach to the ceiling every 15 minutes, 10 minutes. Uh, now, again, that may not even be practical for, for a lot of people. But um, th- this isn't a necessarily a one-to-one ratio where if you can reverse – uh, and actually introduce mobility into some of these key segments of the spine, hips, and ankles, uh, you may be able to uh, you know, create quite a bit of, uh, of, of change. Uh, but you know, it's a, like, what, what can someone do the, at work? I'm not sure because obviously you know, the realities of a, of a, of a formal workplace uh, are, are – you know, should not be ignored. We don't want to be, but do, well, do this, do this, do this when you know full well, they can't do it. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think taking a three to 10 minute program, uh, and, and then when you, when you're talking about 10 minutes, it's really interesting because maybe the first step is like, Oh, what am I going to accomplish in 10 minutes? Like the bottom line is you, you're going to accomplish a lot in 10 minutes. Uh, particularly if you do the, in my opinion, early in the day, uh, meaning you wake up and you do 10 minutes and we go back to like maybe what appears to be some 1950s uh, calisthenics. Uh, th- this is really, you know, I believe where, the, uh, where some of the answers can lie, where if you just give yourself five circles at every joint possible in each direction, I think you can uh, really start to stave off a lot of these uh, chronic changes and adaptations uh, in the uh, in some in all the key areas. The, the goal is for joints to move. The jo- we have joints to move. We should move them. Um, I'm not talking about at all complex strategies. I'm saying putting your hands on your knees and rolling your knees in a circle. Uh, it, it's not it's not it's not meant to be athletic. It's not meant to groove. Uh, um, efficient movement strategies, if that even has a, a way to define it. What we're doing is, is asking joints to be healthy. And by moving them and swishing synovial fluid around the surfaces and reminding the brain that, hey, we're not supposed to be stiff, then uh, we can really take that through the day. And even if we just do one circle at every joint in the body, uh, I think it would be a very, very practical way for lay people to, uh, that have no inclination to be involved in fitness to start to, to hack into what they can do to change some of their uh, challenges. Awesome. Yeah, definitely love that. I had uh, recently had Dr. Martin Gabal on and, you know, his lab in terms of the HIT training showing that, you know, three minutes is equivalent to 150 minutes of, of um, physical activity in a week if you just, you know, become efficient with what you're doing. So I love that idea of, you know, just three to 10 minutes, just getting some movement in. Um, if we shift gears now to the core, I've heard a lot of smart people give a lot of different definitions to the core. Uh, can you can you give us your definition and, and dig into that a little bit? Oh, man, the, that's a... Uh... There's a lot of different definitions, and they're probably uh, all correct. Uh, I think when, several years ago, when I first uh, uh, the first uh, roundabout in the uh, on the speaking circuit, that was the title of my talk, like uh, trying to define the core, because there's really like, there's so many right ways to define the core. Uh, 
is it is it an anatomical structure? I'm not sure. Uh, it, it's I remember Tom Myers, the the famous uh, manual therapist, uh, uh, structural integrationist, suggested that the core ran uh, is was a line of fascia that ran something like from the roof of your mouth to um, one of your medial malleoli. Uh, and I, if we understand his model, it it, it it's not ridiculous. Uh, to think that the core is only your abdominal muscles, I'm not sure that's terribly complete uh, because understanding the joint by joint, uh, the, the core muscles, the, the abdominal muscles are only going to function as well as the joint systems that they inhabit as well as the neighbors above and below. But one of the things that we can objectify in terms of uh, identifying uh, ideal core function is the ability to have the joints above and below the abdominal muscles be able to achieve a particular position, um, which I would call neutral or centrated, where they're, think of the, the, the bottom of the rib cage and the top of the pelvis are like the arms of a scissor. And we want the scissors to be, you know, when the scissor is closed, they're, they're this look like a straight line. But the, the two, the two uh, arms of the scissors are, are parallel to each other. And we should look at the rib cage and the top of the pelvis to be parallel to each other. When you can have this joint position, the diaphragm is in the ideal position to maximally contract. When the diaphragm can maximally contra contract with an inhalation, intra-abdominal pressure in the abdominal area is maximized. When intra-abdominal pressure is maximized, the deep core muscles, uh, including the diaphragm, but also the pelvic floor, the multifidus, and the transverse abdominis uh, will contract without any volitional control. You've actually started to contract and tighten core muscles to protect the spine, to begin to hold the slingshot of the joint by joint, to begin to create central stability, sagittal stability, and then allow the thoracic spine, the pelvis and hips to move freely. Uh, then you have this high level of efficiency. There's also an incredible autonomic nervous system effect of, of, uh, of this breathing strategy, which I am giving you as a soft definition to, um, uh, to define the core. So I think a lot of it is the, the, some of these deeper uh, abdominal muscles, not the ones you can see or touch, uh, but it's also having the ideal joint position so that those muscles can function in a very particular fashion um, in unison and as directed by intra-abdominal pressure. Because you can contract these muscles volitionally, but this is very foolish. Like pulling in your belly button uh, is absolute nonsense. Gotcha. Um, is, uh, you, know, you, can, you can have a straddled step and kind of lean forward and backwards, and there'll be EMG studies that will say that um, you're contracting the multifidus. This is all foolishness because uh, when you hold your ground and take a punch or throw a ball or lift a weight or even walk, all four of those deep inner core muscles are contracting in unison. At no point are they ever contracting in normal human movement. They're never contracting with your own intent, and they're never contracting by themselves outside of pathological conditions. So uh, this is, there's a lot of victories in understanding that this is an ideal process. Is it the, is it the core? Is it the strong core? I, I don't know because being able to do other things with other abdominal muscles are still very, very desirable. Uh, the stronger you can hold your lumbar spine, the more you're going to be able to move above and below. Uh, is it always efficient? What is the cost of your of your training, et cetera, et cetera? But there's a lot of correct answers. I gave you one that I think has uh, uh, quite a few boxes checked. Hey, you mentioned there like sort of lumbar, uh, you know, stability and, and movement there, and I know. You know, obviously crunches, things like Russian twists, especially in the, you know, we'll talk CrossFit here in a minute, but in the CrossFit world, those are those are movements, especially the Russian twists that are common. I know you're a, a big McGill fan. Are these things that, uh, you know, should, should they be still practiced these days? Is that putting us in a compromised position? Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? The, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm a fan of, of, of intelligent science. It doesn't mean I'm always a fan of a person. So, uh, <laughs> 
the um, no, but uh, I just had very good conversation with uh, with Dr. McGill recently, and um, you know a lot of times when we talk, it's not necessarily about a lot of these things because to me it's really it's really uh, uh, you know, cut and dry. Like there's no uh, I don't I don't I, I don't know why we anyone would like to do these things. Now, what is it? And, and usually the, like the message is, OK, if it's going to be very impersonable and probably unprofessional, OK, don't don't do crunches and don't do Russian twists. And then the immediate response from this idiot is to say, uh, all right, well, then what do you do for your core? Uh, it's like, oh, my God, this is so wrong. Because there's the, yeah, of course, there's there's definitely uh, drills, exercises, positions, lifts that can strengthen the force production of certain muscles of the of the lumbar spine, but that they are all going to be done under ideal joint positions, so you can maximize force production and minimize joint wear. You only get so much uh, of uh, you know cartilage and so much uh, a neural uh, ability to buffer neural threat when your joints are constantly in positions that the body recognizes as threatening or potentially injurious. So this whole notion that the only way to train your core is through this concentric force production outside of spinal neutral. There's so many other brilliant exercises, uh, more than even just planks or more than just putting a bar on your back. There's a lot of things that, that can be done that uh, can keep the spine neutral and and uh, very effectively create a fitness training effect, even if it's just bodybuilding. That being said, if the best way to train the abdominal muscles is to not move out of neutral, the second best way, which is really the first worst way, but the next way is, okay, get outside of neutral but stay outside of neutral. So if you're going to train lumbar flexion, the, the, if you insist that this is absolutely has to happen, then get into lumbar flexion and stay in lumbar flexion. So you are controlling and not moving from flexion all the way to extension. Flexion, all, like that nonsense move that some people will do on a, on a uh, glute ham raise. First of all, it's called a glute ham raise machine. It's not called anything else. It's not called a <laughs> – yeah, it's called a glute ham raise machine. It's not a glute ham raise developer. It's, it's, it's so frustrating. People make up words so they feel special, like, they, like it's their um, – like it's theirs and it's only theirs and it's their club and no one else can be in it. Okay, God made glute ham raise machines to do glute ham raises. He didn't make them to do these crunches where you are just mangling your spine, where you're now in the third uh, choice of how to train these abdominal muscles directly, where you are then ranging from maximal flexion into maximal extension, to maximal flexion to maximal extension. Uh, These are all – that's probably the worst way to minimize force production and maximize joint wear. Uh, so, yeah, it's, everything is a cost. Like, anybody can do whatever they want um, to challenge, whether it's McGill's research or other research, to say that the cost and effectiveness of doing this is better than doing it another way. Well, now, now that's a real question. It's no longer opinion. Um, yeah, people do what they want, but I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily understand uh, why uh, this has to happen. And I can also give you some firsthand knowledge from coaching, where in the United States Marine Corps, uh, physical fitness um, uh, testing uh, is is one of the tests is to do uh, 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 crunches, uh, 100 crunches in two minutes. Every single Marine that I trained for a particular group of time, we never, ever did any, any kind of lumbar flexion training, and every single one of them scored 100%. Because any athlete, that, any, any normal athlete that, can, that trains should be able to walk into the gym at any moment and do 100 crunches. Uh, you don't need to practice for these types of things because that's actually speaking to you know, some of the competitive nature because if you have to compete in something, then at some point you probably should introduce it into your training program and there's a cost to that and if you train something that's injurious, 
you're now increasing your probability of injury. It doesn't mean you will get injured. It just means you're increasing the probability. And if anybody would challenge that probability, I would just say, like, let's talk about them cowboys, man. Like, like talk about something else. It's so not even a conversation. Um, but I think when you bring up the people that you're talking about, um, it's it's just not a it's just a very challenging conversation because they they don't speak in 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 facts. They speak in emotion. And okay, dude, do what you want to do, man. I ain't worried. I ain't worried about you. Like, go ahead. Like, do do your thing. Like. You, you didn't ask for my opinion then. Like you really just wanted me to tell you that you were doing everything right when in fact you're not. So it's, a, uh, it's an interesting thing. And, uh, and I think a lot of it too is because your back doesn't break once. It doesn't like break the first time. It may not break for a long time. Um, and at the same time, on the flip side of all of that diatribe, if, if I knew you had to be in lumbar flexion for your competition, we can create a spine that's more resilient to lumbar flexion. It's probably going to be very hard to create that resiliency uh, and force production at the same time. But if you can almost periodize your way towards creating a spine that doesn't break in flexion and then make it flex a whole bunch, there's a way to do that. There's actually, you know, you can take any uh, injury prediction, any, any injury position, valgus knee, hyperextend, uh, you know, hypervalgus uh, elbow, like, you know, thrower, you know, javelin thrower, a baseball thrower. These areas that we know are going to be injured, it is very, very scientific to create, uh, to direct collagen to those areas and create a, a stiffer tissue that doesn't affect joint function. That can be done. That's some, that's some legit performance stuff right there that I'm not sure is shared by some of these, uh, fly-by-night weekend folks but uh so so there is a flip side to it yes doing a whole bunch of do a whole bunch of crunches i would expect your back to hurt but if you're gonna come tell me hey i i need to do this test that has 500 crunches in five minutes i'm like all right i can help you i know what to do uh it will be hard to do a bunch of other things at the same time um but that can be done so um that's uh it, it's a lot of there's a lot of it's just knowledge and and understanding science and how the body adapts to different stressors. Very, very well said there. Now, um, if we shift gears a little bit to uh, to basketball players, and you know, growing up playing a lot of basketball myself, I know stiff stiff ankles were definitely uh, a, a sore spot for myself. Um, can you speak to some other areas for basketball players that can be, uh, you know, sometimes problematic, and, and some of the limitations with movements that you might see with uh, with basketball players? I think I think if the, the joint by joint gets exploited and. You know, what do we see a lot of? Uh, we're going to see sore knees and we're going to see sore backs. And uh, so what's the link between the, uh, excuse me, between the knees and the back? Well, it would be the hips. And if the, the uh, to gain certain positions, uh, you know, I think one of the, the fallacies when it comes to hip motion in, uh, in basketball is that it appears that we never descend uh, past a certain range of motion in the game of basketball in the athletic position. But if you actually watch basketball in slow motion, the, the, the dropping way, way below these different positions for at times under one second to create this amortization phase, this eccentric followed by explosive concentric is very, very common. So now if, uh, if the joints can actually get into that position, albeit with a lot of resistance, whether it's in the ankles, knees, hips, uh, etc., we start to find that, uh, that, that the, there's these joints that have to overcome incredible amounts of force plus the external load of jumping or leaping or moving side to side, and these joints can become uh, accelerated in the degenerative process. Um, you don't see too many upper body things. Now, you're going to see a lot of basketball players with what appears to be a rounded uh, back and a, and, a, and a forward head and some of these things that might look a lot like the office workers were talking about before. Yep. But in my experience, I don't find that to be terribly relevant. Uh, and here's why. If you're a basketball player, you're pretty good at bringing your arms over your head. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a basketball player. So uh, if you actually did have, uh, did have a thoracic spine that did not allow for ideal motion of the upper extremities, you would have been naturally selected out of basketball probably a long time ago, like sixth or fifth grade. Gotcha. So, so uh, one of the things that's important is just because you see some, and that really the message there is don't ever look at static posture. 
Yeah, a static posture is is like this terrible red herring. There's a group of people that uh, their head enters the room three minutes before the rest of their body because they have such terrible posture. Uh, they're, they're called ultimate fighters. You probably don't want to laugh at them. They uh, because when they when they reach back into a Superman punch, they have this brilliant plumb line that drops right from their ear through their acromion down through the ASIS, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So just because you carry yourself a certain way, what's more important is can you change it? That tells you the joints can get into particular positions. So in basketball, we don't see too many of those upper body injuries that are overuse. Now, if they train like idiots, uh, then then you know you'll see some of these uh, muscle strains in the upper body. But but basketball is a is a running, leaping, and jumping sport. It's a reaching sport, and uh, and and we're going to see lots of stiffness in the ankles and hips lead more towards knee and lumbar issues. That, that's, I think that's uh, probably, and obviously the toes, the joint by joint goes through the toes. I mean, um, they're always wearing shoes, which is not terribly ideal, but with these longer levers, you know, people that are tall or people that have longer levers are not inherently um, susceptible to being stiff. But there is a longer lever to control. If they do not have the requisite motor strategy or strength, they will then rely on the passive restraints. The passive restraints are, are exhibiting force. They they grow, you know, they're they're signaled to to, de- to to develop more collagen, and they become naturally stiff, which creates this uh, perverse efficiency of controlling the long levers. So it's a uh, it's it's just another another layer of analysis. But just because someone's tall doesn't mean they're going to be tight or stiff. Um, that's that's ridiculous. Um, but if they're lazy with their with their levers, then this can happen over time. And we know we often hear some myths around you know tall guys shouldn't squat or in terms of explosive movements like Olympic lifts you know shouldn't be going from the ground up. Or can you? Speak to that a little bit. Is it just person by person dependent, or are there some yeah. generalities there? Um, now, uh, it's it, if somebody is going to Olympic lift and they insist on only Olympic lifting out of the hang position, hip hip hooray! Like you're you're like light years ahead of the curve anyway, so it's okay. But to think that just because someone is tall that they shouldn't do something is 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 absurd. Um, again, I can give you some very, very good example that I know that you'll be able to vouch for. Um, I'm literally five foot nothing. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, in measured in San Antonio Spurs practice facility, five foot four and a half. That's the, the tallest I've ever been measured. You know full well that I can stand next to somebody who's sometimes 10 inches taller than me and my legs are longer than they are. Now, because I'm just this small little fire hydrant looking human being, you can't tell that I have very, very long legs. But by definition, if my legs are longer, then I shouldn't be lifting off the floor, and I'm five foot nothing, okay? So this is, it's, uh, now, you're gonna see individuals struggle with barbell lifts, uh, particularly the static lifts, squat, deadlift, et cetera, not as much Olympic lifts, if they have disproportionate levers, meaning they have a very long torso, shorter legs, shorter arms. They're going to struggle. There's always going to be a value of certain levers for certain movements. Most athletes, uh, team sports, the, the, you're going to want to have a shorter torso, a shorter head, longer arms, longer legs, longer hands, longer feet, shorter lower arm, uh, uh, I'm sorry, shorter humerus, longer ulna and radius, shorter femur, longer tibia and fibula. If you have that, you have a sprinter, you have Tristan Thompson, you have all of these incredibly tall athletes yep. that, can do, that can do things. Now, is there a cost to them lifting off the floor? If they can get down into the position and are not having to overcome internal resistance or internal stiffness, there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't. Uh, now, if anyone, whether they're my height or Tristan's height or God, if they don't have the joint positions to achieve what you want in your plan A, then you have them do something different. But again, it has nothing to do with their total height. You will find that uh, longer torso individuals will struggle at handling the same amount of weight because their levers are disadvantageous for load carriage. So they're going to do better with Olympic lifts or other types of lifts. They can always get stronger and they can always get more explosive, but they're always going to lose this quote-unquote competition for how many wheels they're going to be able to pick up off the floor. 
So, again, if you look at World's Strongest Man, some of these dudes are 6'10 and 7 feet, and they're pulling off the floor. So is that are they going to be world-class Olympic lifters? No, because at some point they are further away from the ground. So they'll never be able to lift as much weight, but it doesn't mean they actually can't get into the position to develop strength and power, even fitness with a barbell. It's, it's completely farcical to think that just because someone's tall, when in fact someone who's really short and has bad levers and bad stiffness, they're going to look more awful than somebody who moves really, really well in a 6'8". 100%. Now, if we shift gears to, to golfers and that idea of even you know, training, barbells, the example of Tiger Woods, you often hear you know, mistakenly or, or perhaps not that you know, all his lifting and heavy lifting over the years has accumulated and led to some of his uh, movement deficiencies, etc. You know, is there a place for young golfers to be lifting? Um, is, is it more is, – is obviously movement pattern trump everything? Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? Oh, movement pattern, you know, what you say always trumps everything because uh, that means there's an efficiency and what you believe will be a result of the adaptation of the, of the strategy. Uh, a couple of things about Tiger Woods. Number one, you, know, you hear people say that he's built like a linebacker, uh, maybe like a third string JV linebacker. I mean, I'm not really sure why people think that he's so like diesel. Like this was a, this was a dude who trained. Uh, I've never seen him train. Um, I'm under the impression that a lot of the choices that he made were very foolish, um, trained like an idiot, uh, just because he was lifting weights and got bigger. Uh, you know, that doesn't always mean it was done so in a low cost fashion. I never worked with him. I only kind of have stories on some things that I would be like, dude, why, why would anyone ever do that? That being said, um, there's, there's, it's, it's so interesting on when we, whether we advise young people or just advise anybody, when we look at the elite of elite athletes, oh, no, don't, don't go by him. Like, he's an outlier. So if Tiger Woods is an outlier for golf, you know, where you can't do – you just can't do what Tiger Woods does, why are we even worried about what he did in the weight room? Tiger Woods is going to be sure. Tiger Woods no matter whether he lifted tiddlywinks or he lifted barbells. You know, golf is a sport. It is a physical activity that requires qualities of development. If you make choices to get bigger and stronger and it makes you a worse golfer, you did it the wrong way. It doesn't mean that it can't be done. Now, you asked specifically about younger athletes. A young athlete, in my mind, is not even a golfer until they're done with their second growth spurt. There's no such thing as a specialized athlete until their second growth spurt, at which point they're always training like an athlete. What I, there, there's, to, to lift weight, what does lift weights mean? Uh, are we teaching nine-year-olds to, uh, to do the Olympic lifts with balloons and, and empty PVC pipes and other age-specific toys? Absolutely. Um, so that when their body is appropriate to be developing hormonal factors, uh, then good things are going to happen. They've already learned the movement strategies, which you finished the, the question with. Now, uh, should we put 10-year-olds into a circuit of 12 machines at your local, I don't know what you call it there, good life or whatever, where yeah, no, yep. no, Noah's, Noah's Ark, where they have two machines of everything. Like, no, that's also ridiculous. Um, do I think that he's going to break his, his, uh, his, his epiphyseal plates? Yeah, that's also ridiculous. Um, you know, weight training does not break growth plates. I mean, you're not going to stunt his growth. I'm short because my dad's five, six and my mom's five foot, not because, you know, I lifted a lot of weights. So, um, long-term athletic development, AKA training junior athletes has an enormous role for resistance training. The amount of force that little kids put through their arms when they're climbing monkey bars is exponential, compared to even sometimes a four times uh, overhead press, which I'm not familiar of any human being that can do. So it's, uh, it's, it's just, you know, golf is different because it's, it's white collar. Um, uh, one of the PGA Tour players that I work with had this very, very uh, interesting sociological commentary on, I'm like, dude, seriously, like why, why is golf so against lifting? Like what, it's so, like it can make you better. I'm not saying your arms are going to get so big so you can't swing the club. That means I suck. I hurt you. I made you bad. He's like, well, most of golf is a country club sport. And, you know, country club is a lot about culture. 
And and when you when you when you're in a country club, you usually um, are not the ones carrying things, and you're not the one putting things together or fixing things. You're paying someone else to do it. And and when when uh, someone of that uh, culture and someone who feels strongly that that's their role in society, and they see another human being with big arms, they think, oh no no, that's not me. That's not what I do. I'm not I'm not blue collar. I don't. I don't carry things, you know, so that means my arms aren't going to be big. And it was a really interesting thing from a legit PGA Tour player who actually does wow. quite a bit. He does quite a bit of lifting weights. And he's like, that's why. Now, it's not because, you know, the people today um, look down upon others. I'm not suggesting that, even though I do think that's part of it. I mean, you have you have country clubs that don't allow women and they don't allow black people. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Definitely. But, but 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 when when golf is so um, society you know, driven from that ilk, it makes sense as to why then the culture and society really shuns fitness uh, because it, it, it kind of separates them from uh, no different than the, the people we were talking about too. Everybody kind of wants to just be on there. They want to be in their club. They want to be in their team. Something that separates them from from others and uh it's really probably you know silly to be talking about at some point but it's uh should little kids train uh, with weights absolutely do it the right way with intelligent people not just running kids around to get tired uh measure their growth measure their growth spurts put them into positions to succeed whether they're golfers basketball players ditch diggers swimmers doesn't matter um there's 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 high levels of efficacy to training young people or sports that uh, typically um, have this dogma of, uh, of training. Now, uh, well, very well said, first off. And, um, you know, for young golfers, in terms of obviously being such a unilateral sport, you know, I grew up playing a ton of golf and just, you know, the right side, QL, things being very tight and imbalanced there compared to the left. Are there movement prep strategies or things that you'd start to try to implement to, to maintain, and whether it's golf, a really unilateral sport or others that would help, you know, young people continue to maintain those movement patterns? I'm not sure the evidence is there. Um, it, it, it would seem logical that if you're always doing something one to way, uh, you should you know, keep an eye on it so that it doesn't uh, you know, build up these one-sided issues. Now, if it's efficient, um, we haven't really seen that. Now, you're, you're always going to be allowed uh, or allowed. There's always going to be some degree of uh, asymmetry when you're constantly you know, having a big turn on one side. But you typically don't see a, a, a huge gap in these asymmetries. Now, if there's an inefficiency in how they're swinging or how they're moving and taking that movement into a swing, then that inefficiency likely will be uh, exploited. But uh, I don't think we're seeing that. Now, and the other thing, too, to keep in mind, uh, even at the elite level, uh, swinging the other way is, is a tremendous performance uh, tool. Where going all the way back to Socrates um, himself and the athletes that he was training, um, they would they would throw the discus with both arms. Um, I don't know that they were though concerned about QL muscle imbalances, <laughs> but they they knew there was something there. But if, I think if you if you do movement screening on elite golfers, you will see some things that uh, add up to uh, a a frank asymmetry. But I'm not sure it's 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 relevant, and and from what I'm seeing, it, it wouldn't be relevant uh, uh, to to actually change it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's definitely you know swinging the opposite way seems to be a pretty uh, simple strategy to help um, maintain those movements, like you mentioned, and something that's been done for so long. Um, if we shift gears again to baseball players, this is something where you know whether it's over specialization when we're younger, you know the, the growth of the Tommy John surgeries amongst young players, pitchers in particular. Um, you know, any any thoughts there in terms of etiologies, causes of this? Is it, is it really just overuse, overstrain, or uh, go- it's a uh, it, it's it's not a uh, it's not a sect of of uh, of performance that I'm um, either highly well read or steeped in. So I'm just going to give you guesses that um, the the uh, you know who who becomes the pitcher, the kid that can throw hard. Not necessarily throw straight, you know, because little kids will swing and miss. And, and uh, so if he can throw hard, that means he's gifted with some mobility. And if he's gifted with mobility and a little bit of talent, he's going to figure out a way to get that little bit extra out of his elbow. Uh, if you add that to, you know, over, over, over training, basically just too much, too much, too much, 
then the the weak link is that el- is that elbow, um, and and it's it's just a matter of training load. Like it, it, we can say all we want about that they're, they're throwing too much, but if they're going to throw that much, they're clearly not fit. Whether it's strength, endurance, etc., like there's there's this dis dis uh, disproportionate layers of analysis. So maybe they're not fit enough by the 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 tension, the, the thickness, um, the healthy thickness of their ulnar collateral ligament, which again can be can be trained. You can get bigger muscles, you can get bigger ligaments. So it's just a matter of training load, and the easy solution would be to pull them back and not have them pitch enough. But remember, I, as I said, this isn't this isn't something that I'm I'm steeply involved in. Gotcha. Now that was, uh, I think you're you're very right in the sense that uh, you know, growing up, all the all the pitchers were definitely the hardest throwers, and it just seems to compound onto itself. Um, now I'm a firm believer that you know experts in nutrition and movement should be a real first touch point in the medical system, even before doctors. And I've heard you say that you know therapists should let the doctors know or the surgeons know when it's time to perform surgery. Can you can you explain that a little more and, and share that with people? Well, well it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know that we should be evaluating people differently. Like uh, it's if um, you know we you and I have different skill sets. To, but but we're, we're all targeting the same problems. So if we evaluate the same way, um, I should know if my techniques can help or not. If they can't, I need to kick them to someone else. The more aware and the more um, uh, non-insulated the performance team is, I'm going to know enough about what you do. Not that because I know how to do it, but now I know I can send this client, hey, you know what? I'm not the guy go see Bubs, he'll help you like, because I know enough about what you do. I know enough about what the surgeon does. Um, and if I'm confident enough in what I'm seeing uh, and I'm confident enough in my techniques, I should know I don't need four weeks to determine if you need surgery or not. Uh, now, that may happen sometimes, but now let's, let's put it all on the table. And uh, yeah, now, I don't – if, if we take that approach, it doesn't really matter who they see first. The problem is that physicians uh, and you know, physicians, doctors, everybody gets all fussy with what their terminology is. Put it this way: everybody thinks they're the man. And and I can you know uh, when I explain my model to business people, not not even patients. You know, like my model is meant to find out when I am the least useful person to you. That way, I'm not wasting your time. And no one, no, very, very few people think like that. They're so altruistic and they're so excited to help the person that they're actually going to find their, their thought process is, okay, how do I help you? That's actually not my thought process. My thought process is how do I get you to the right place? If it happens to be me, that's fine. So I'm not evaluating anyone with the intent that my techniques are going to serve them. My, I'm evaluation to learn what techniques are going to serve them. Now, if I put that into the hands of an orthopedic surgeon, they don't even know what the hell to do because all they know is what they know. They, they, they basically make a decision. Am I going to do surgery or not? They don't know what else the person needs. Whereas, you know what? None of this stuff is making sense. This is, man, he's got pain here, here, and here, but he's got all this ideal joint motion. This is all kind of coming out of, you know, ever since he moved here from the other place. You know what? Hey, go see Bubs. I'm going to send him a message if I have your permission. I want him to test you for celiacs. I want you to test you for ankylosing spondylitis. I want him to test you for, for, for every, all of the uh, lupus, all the different, all the six different things that are on the list of autoimmune diseases that are significant of coming to a new place and maybe eating some new food because nothing showed up on my neuromuscular evaluation that, that I would do as a therapist. And I, and, and I, because I'm confident that you're better than me to help the person. And, and I don't see that. I don't see that happening. And I see, and, and again, it's easy for me to say because I'm doing it in the, the wealthiest zip code in the world, you know, where all the different practitioners are all going to get paid well anyway, because the people value what we're doing. Most of the uh, most of our customers, aka patients, are ignorant, and they're just going to places that are convenient to their location or to their insurance, etc. So I'm not worried about losing money because I'm gaining incredible amounts of social equity from the patient who's actually going to get better, and from the other providers that are in this are in this network and in this this circuit. So um, I don't care who sees them first. 
but nobody's in charge. You know, the, the patient is in charge. And if we know enough about what other practitioners can do, then the patient will always win and everybody will make a boatload of money. Instead, people would rather keep it to themselves and you know, it just turns into a mess. And then next thing you know, nine months later, the person still hasn't gotten an MRI. For sure. Now, that, yeah. that patient-centered model is obviously, uh, you know, the first line and then and the goal. And I know your training equals rehab program is, you know, phenomenal. So it's just great reviews by, uh, you know, therapists, trainers, docs. Like, can you tell folks a little bit about the, the philosophies? I know we've touched on some of them already, but, uh, you know, walk people through that. Well, a lot of it is what we just said, where yeah, no matter what your training is, the body is the same and it, and it works off the same set of rules. And uh, if someone has a complaint, you might have a, a skew as to how you evaluate based on your background and your skill set, but your stuff has to work. And uh, the, the goal of, of that, that first DVD was to bring trainers and, and, and medical providers together on this division of labor where you know, this is what you do, this is what you do, because now it gives the medical provider more time to work on some things. But it's all just based on trust and, and having a system. People, people like, they, I don't think people really like systems because it kind of forces certain things to happen. And sometimes those things are you get sent to the back. Like you're, not, you're on the bench. You ain't, you ain't helping right now because the system said that this is the right person to help. But now, you're, yeah, I want to do it. I want to do it. Yeah, and that's uh, so. So sometimes it can become fussy where where people aren't used to having this high levels of trust. Now, this is a commercial product, and I'm trying to make money. Like I, I understand that, and I'm very disappointed that it happened. But you know, you put. Yeah, I, I feel okay with everything that I put on the DVD. How other people run with it and do some of the things that maybe I'm not so thrilled about. Uh, meaning healthcare providers acting like trainers when they have no clue how to train anybody, uh, and vice versa. You see non-healthcare providers getting their hands into certain situations um, in terms of pain or uh, whether it be medical or orthopedic, and uh, and they're they're just not they're, they're they're not trained to identify some of these more insidious issues. So that's none of, none of that stuff was things that I taught on the DVD. But but the, the overwhelming message is how do you get people to to work together in a systematic approach, in this case, uh, just for, for what, what appeared to be musculoskeletal issues. Fantastic, man. Well, listen, I want to make sure I respect your time here. So I want to finish off with a question that everyone's been waiting for. And that's, uh, you know, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your morning routine? Are you a coffee drinker? What does your morning look like? This, this is, this is what everybody, uh, waited for, huh? This, this is the burning question, buddy. So, so, uh, uh, which, which morning, if I'm, if I'm going into New York, you know, give us give us a sampling. I know you travel a lot. Do you have any different travel strategies when you're on the road in the plane? No, nope. I I I, uh, I try to fool the, the 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 flight attendant that so they can't tell them my seat is leading back. And uh, if I miss if I miss my breakfast, I don't care. I, uh, <laughs> now the the uh, uh, obviously a lot of the techniques that are normal in in uh, in Toronto that we know. Uh, are not always so normal in America. So I go to Phoenix and I see a, a nature path that uh, pumps me full of um, whatever keeps me alive because I usually wake up uh, at um, you know, between 3.20 and 3.40, uh, at least twice a week, if not three or four. And uh, to make sure I don't drive off the road, I have an energy drink that I know you can't get in Canada uh, because, I often, <laughs> because I often look for it and you cannot find it. But uh, actually, because the schedule, like in, when we're when we're all together in Canada, is so less demanding than my daily life, I actually can go six weeks without coffee uh, or anything like that. I just started drinking coffee; never had it before. Um, but I'm still. You know, when I say that, it's like I have a lot of other forms of, of caffeine uh, that uh, that you know I'm sure are draining my adrenals, and then I get them filled up again from whatever voodoo that. Uh, Sunil does for me in Phoenix or what, uh, what's ever in that bag when, uh, when Sam brings them over to the hotel. So, uh, yeah, I wake up really early and I don't drink coffee, but, uh, I just found black, what's a cold brew. I like that. So, cause nice. I don't know, what, I don't know what good coffee is. So I'm not like, so I'm not so picky like everybody. <laughs> you know, this year at training camp, we're going to up the game here. So we'll, uh, 
we'll we'll give you a, a, a sampling so you can you can let us know what you like best. Yeah, I'm not even gonna know, and it's like it's too hot. Like I want cold. I want it iced. <laughs> awesome, man. Listen, appreciate the time. Where can people keep up with what you're doing? Uh, where can people get more info on the training equals rehab program and uh, connect with you on the interwebs? Yeah, so um, my website is charlieweingroff.com. Um, Facebook, I guess I'm maxed out. I have to make up a new page, but I'm Charlie Weingroff on uh, on Facebook and Instagram and uh, Cwagon75 on Twitter, where uh, I'm, I've been fairly active over the last uh, year or two. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you carving out the time. I mean, I know this was a you're, – you're a busy man, and we're going to get this out before the uh, – the NSCA conference here in Ontario. So for anybody listening in, that will be the following week. And again, for everyone, thanks for tuning in. As always, you can find all the links and podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.